Fundamental Life Podcast. All right, well, how about that warm-up music? Man, I love it. That warm-up music is the bomb, dude. It's good stuff. Welcome to episode number seven of the Fundamental Life series. Um, myself, Steve Saxton, Matthew Christian Arnold. Ta-da. And today we've got uh, a uh, another guest online, which we'll introduce here in a second. But uh, let's chat. How's uh, how's your Corona time going, bro? You know, it's all right. In fact, uh, today I think I'm going to drive to Ogden um, to Costco because they have uh, Segway battery-powered scooters there. And the ones uh, down here in Salt Lake are all sold out. So I was going to drive up there and check them out because... You know, hey, why not? Something to drive around, neighborhood, and I don't know. You can't vacation, so grab a scooter, vacation, right? It's a staycation. You can just tour Draper. <laughs> That's right. I figure because it's got up to 28 miles on it. You can do 15 to 16 miles per hour, and I thought it'd be fun to, like, uh, get a couple of them, and then, you know, I can have, like, Nerf Wars with my kid. Do you remember <laughs> when we bought – remember the Razor scooters we bought? So our – our office used to be in Union Park, and we bought these Razor scooters. Everybody's had them, like the little cheap Razor scooters that you buy at, like, Pep Boys. And then we bought that little motocross bike that was <laughs> battery-powered, and we had them in the office, which was not a great idea because no. we had people doing willies down the wall, down the <laughs> hall, putting holes in the wall, wrecking them. It was a total, it was a total, uh, what can I call it, shit show? <laughs> oh, dude, it was, it, it was the greatest shit show, though. Let's be honest. Like, uh, so... I used to ride the little motocross battery-powered razor, and I'd take conditions because we were right next door to Countrywide. And so I would drive it next door, and then I'd drive it through their cubicle maze. And when you're sitting that low, I was below the cubicle line. So, like, literally, it was something out of a movie, man. It was like I was hauling ass in between the cubicles and like people would step out and like jump out of the way and papers would be flying because like i'm just like what? those were good days man those oh, were good man. days hilarious so today we've got uh, we're going to kind of exit left a little bit from some of the mortgage topics that we've talked about um we've thrown a gentleman on the mic here that uh, has no idea what we're going to discuss um, I don't know that we're gonna we're gonna know what we're gonna discuss here, but I know it will be interesting, right? I thought you were you're talking about me. Yeah, you're interesting, but uh, our guest today will be uh, very interesting. So let's step up to the mic here. We've got Marcus Wing, and Marcus is a, a good friend of Matt's for quite some time. He also has done our podcast since we started this. Uh, I have a lot of respect and ad from admiration for this man. He's uh, somehow made a go as an entrepreneur of doing his own thing and uh i'm gonna let him kind of introduce because i'll i'll butcher it but welcome to the show big dog thanks man i wouldn't say entrepreneur i'd say like more like a rat that uh when the water <laughs> comes in just scurries <laughs> along and happens to make it and never drowns <laughs> so that's that's me in a nutshell right there well working uh watching you from a distance and learning about your career path the last several years listening to your podcast um i have a lot of respect for people who are grinders and i would put you in that category of the little rat you know chasing chasing uh getting away from the flood or whatever i love grinders and that's what i love about you so if will you take a couple minutes and kind of just give us 
um, kind of your your perspective in professional life as well as your experience and what uh, what's brought you to where you are now. And then I want to talk I want to talk about some topics that I'll surprise you with, but sure. uh, just kind of inform the listeners as to who you are and kind of your um, progression to where you are now. Yeah, so I grew up in Southern California. Uh, and he looks it. You should I? see this guy. He looks like a surfer. He does not belong in Alpine, Utah, bro. Dude, I'll be honest. When people first hire me, I have a production company, and sometimes we do you know, very professional corporate events. And when they first see me, they're like, wait, this is the guy who's handling all of our audiovisual? Where's the tie? Yeah, they're like, uh, hey, uh, excuse me, sir, where's your collared shirt? And I'm like, oh, yeah, I don't do that. you know. But then once they get to know me and they see the work that I do, they're they're cool with it. But Southern California, uh, my dad was the average, you know, 60-hour-a-week uh, guy, construction, you know, strength of his back, worked hard, uh, did everything he could to provide for a family, would work the hours and come home. We lived in kind of a, you know, a more humble area. And in order to make our family more comfortable, he'd come home and after working his hours, would come home and work on our house. And we did an addition, we bought a small house, did an addition, constantly remodeling and I think that was my first good example of uh, work and effort and hustle, you know. And so that was a good opportunity for me to learn. And I learned a lot when I was a kid. I learned that if I didn't work, I didn't get things I wanted. And at a young age, I found out that I wanted a lot of stuff. Uh, first was a motorcycle, you know, around like 11, 12. I had buddies that had brand new dirt bikes. And I wanted a dirt bike, man. I'd go out with my friends. It, you know, usually have like a extra four-wheeler or something, and I was always like, I want a dirt bike. So I eventually got a job working. I mean, I always would hustle and rake people's yards, mow lawns, do what I could, but my first real job was a guy who was a teacher at my school. After school, he would cut trees down, and he knew my family situation, knew we could, I could probably use the money. And so he would cut the trees down, and I would drag him out and run him through a chipper, and it was good because he taught at the school that I went to So every day. He was actually in our ward in church. His name was Brother Brown. I called him Brother Brown. Brother Brown would pick me up. And we'd go cut down trees. And uh, I realized I did not like that. And then I did stucco for a while with a guy on the weekends. And I would mix the mud and I'd throw it in these buckets and then lift it up to the things. And I'd set up the scaffolding. And I remember cutting my arms on all the... Uh, the stucco that was stuck to the scaffolding. And I remember coming home and I'm like, this sucks, but I love motorcycles. And so finally when I was 14, my dad and me were driving down the street, I'd saved some money and we saw a 1978 KX 250. Yeah, buddy. Chained <laughs> to a telephone pole with a paper plate that said for sale on it. And we pulled over and I'm thinking, Oh man, I really want this bike. And my dad looked at me, he's like, how much money you got? I'm like, I think I got like 300 bucks. He's like, all right, I'll spot you the 200, which for my dad to do that at that point, that could have been a million dollar loan. You know what I mean? It was insane. I mean, blow my mind, bought the bike and I rode that thing. You know, this is probably 98. So I got buddies on brand new 98, you know, mono shock, inverted suspension, you know, what year, was, it? What, what year was this bike? It, mine was a 78, so it was 20 years old. Okay. But I rode that thing like it was brand new, and I'd chase these dudes, and I was so stoked to have it. But then I realized I wanted stuff, and I wanted to work, but I hated doing a lot of things I was doing. I found out there was a guy uh, that my dad knew that owned a motorcycle shop. 
I'm like, dude, that sounds like a really fun job. So uh, I went down there, had my mom drop me off when I was like 15, you know, said, hey, I want a job. They're like, um, all right, what do you want to do? I said, anything. And so they took me this back lot and they said, clean this back lot up. And if you do it good enough, when, when you come back, you'll, we'll see if you, you know, you can have a job. So I swept it out. There was like a bay where they were testing sea It was disgusting. I cleaned that all the crates and motorcycles back there. And I, dude, I really wanted that job. So I spent hours back there. I think they forgot I was there, you know? Eventually they come back and they're like, dude, this is, this is really nice. Come back tomorrow. So I ended up finding a kid who worked or lived near me who worked there at the same spot. So after high school, he'd pick me up. We'd drive down to Mountain Motorsports. And my first job was in the setup department, which was cool. Basically, someone bought a bike. They hand me a ticket and they say, all right, uh, this is a brand new CR250. Put it together. I'd jump on a forklift, which I'd never driven a forklift. You know, it was like a little clutch on it too. Figured out how to drive the forklift, go back, pull a crate out with a CR250, take it in, put it together. And then the coolest part was anything, I had a full checklist of what I had to go through on these machines to make sure they were ready. The last thing was test ride, and we had an alley back there. So at 15 years old, I'd ridden Hayabusa 1400s, Ducatis, uh, Gixxer 750s, um, CBR 600 RRs. Uh, I've ridden just about every motorcycle, brand new motorcycle you can think of at the age of 15. So pretty cool job. Anyways, moved from Southern California to Utah when I was 18 after I graduated. Went to work at Honda Centerville in Bountiful, Utah, which was owned by a guy named Rich Eggett, Rich uh, Rockwell Watches. I think that that was kind of my second look at business and kind of a mentorship. Um, Rich owned this motorcycle shop, which was super cool. Uh, really cool people worked there. But I noticed he would come in, right? And he would say, hey, Marcus, uh, you know, everything good? I'm like, yeah, everything's good. He's like, all right, cool, I got to go. My son's got a field trip today. And he'd take off in like his Bronco with the top off and have his kid in the back seat and he was gone, you know? I'm like, oh. How's he doing that? You know, I'm like that's kind of cool. And then uh, he'd come back and be like, "Hey, man, so I'm we're going to Disneyland this weekend. I'm I'm out." I'm like, "Oh, but but you can do that. You're the boss." He's like, "Yeah, yeah, I'm the boss. I can I can do that. It's cool." And he'd take his whole family to Disneyland. I'm looking. I'm like, "Wait, this guy's successful. He's making money, but he's always gone doing stuff he likes with his family." And I said, "Man, I my dad." He always provided, but man, he was working all the time and I never saw him and, you know, it was tough. So long story short, my goal has always kind of been to infuse the two in business. I, I, I'm blue collar, man, through and through. I'll work. If I'm at an event and somebody throws up, I'll be the first one to grab a mop and bucket and I'll mop it up. Usually I'm the first one there. I'm the last one to leave. Generally, I'm the entertainment as a DJ, you know. I, I can outwork most people, but then at the same time, I've realized that the lifestyle that I want is with my family. I want to be, I want my kids' memories to be filled with me being there and being around and doing cool things and spending time with them. So I've, I've kind of balanced the two out where I'm willing to work hard, but I'm trying to work smart so that I can be there for my family. If that makes sense. Well, I think, uh, 
you, your work-life balance <clears throat> is uh, phenomenal. Definitely uh, uh, one of the best that I've seen. Because you get to do, uh, you enjoy all your hobbies. You enjoy riding your motorcycle. Dude. You enjoy spending time uh, with your children, especially Jack's. Uh, we'll talk a little bit about that. But yeah. um, that work-life balance, I think, is important. And for me, um, that's hard. It's hard for me to balance the work and the play and the family and all that because I know, and I, I think this goes for all three of us, uh, you're the provider. Like if you don't provide, my, my wife doesn't, we don't rely on my wife's income for, for to pay the bills. She does work hard, but uh, we don't rely on her income to pay the bills. It's on me. So as a provider, I struggle with that. And I have admiration for those who can balance that better than me. Uh, and I've watched you do that, and it's that's kind of how I learned is through osmosis, just watching other people. Um, I think that Matt and I both maybe struggle to balance work with play. Uh, we're grinders. We, I mean, I like what I do. I actually really love uh, mortgage, and I love uh, being involved and helping people. I like the people that I work with, and sometimes it's like you got to switch gears. And I don't really want to switch gears. I want to be in the same gear, enjoying work and uh, and life. I mean, I don't know. Do you, what, what do you think on that? Because Marcus does a really good job at it. No, and he, really the admiration that I have watching that, it's one of those things where, like, even, even hearing you talk about it, like, you know, it's hard for me. Like, I'm always just going. I have uh, somebody described it once as an irresponsible work ethic. And uh, I just hired a new um, assistant. I hate saying that, dude. I think assistant is just kind of a demeaning terminology. So I, right. you know, I died. Co coworker. Yeah, an associate. And he sits right next to me. And Sidekick. Like, yeah, there you go. He is. He's like a mini me, only we're not related. So anyway, he uh, sits right next to me. And like the other night we were leaving and uh, we were talking. And I was like, look, you got to understand you cannot judge yourself according to me i'm an anomaly when it comes to work i work too much um in a lot of ways and it and for me that's my hobby is work you know i i yeah. enjoy working but uh i don't know that's where it's like i look at you and how much time you spend with your kids and your wife and your family and all of the enjoyment even to be able to take um when you came and did my daughter's prom you you brought your daughter with you and like she was there and she enjoyed herself and you know what i mean it was one of those things where um you, you even said you're like i've been gone a lot lately so i brought her with me and i've i've always thought that was super cool yeah and i think that with that though i mean i you sacrifice some things like i'm I, for me i'm not money motivated uh i could be, and this may sound really arrogant and stupid to some people, but it's the truth. If I wanted to be a millionaire, I could figure it out in the next year. I do not want to invest the time that it would take to do that. I don't think that I would enjoy the lifestyle that I would have to upkeep in order to do that. And so for me personally, I'm not saying it's right or it's wrong, but I've just kind of found like the tipping point where we make enough money to do what we want to do, um, to uh, sustain our hobbies and stuff like that. And I just do enough whether that's right or whether it's wrong i don't know but it's just for me personally that's what i like i don't want to i don't want to i don't want to work all the time like frankly and and that sounds bad 
so I try to work smart as I can instead of harder so that, you know, it's like on, on my event business, I figured it out where I'm gone. Sometimes it was more than I wanted to be, but Fridays and Saturdays, mostly I do the events. <laughs> I work, you know, 48 hours, basically, you know, I tear an event down, sleep for a couple hours, drive home to the next gig, set that one up. And then usually, you know, finish it two in the morning and then I have a three hour tear down and then I drive straight home straight through the night because I want to get home, you know, and, and that's what I've built because that's what I've wanted to do, you know, not saying it's right or it's wrong or it's better, or it's worse, but dude, I figure by the time I'm 60, uh, 65, maybe 70, I'm going to be limping, crippled arthritis, like crazy, you know? So retirement isn't looking that good for me. You know, <laughs> I don't, I don't know that I'm going to enjoy getting old, but right now my body feels pretty good and I'm enjoying the heck out of doing all my hobbies and being with my kids and enjoying, you know, and I, I would, uh, sorry to cut you off. Okay. I'm going to gently disagree with something that you said. Um, cause you said, I don't, I don't want to work all the time. And I think that you're working on different things because I see the amount of time and I've had, I've had time in my adult life with, with kids where I've been this way as well, but I see the amount of time that you spend with particularly Jax. Okay. Uh, Jax is how old? I forget. He's, he's nine. Okay. So Jax is nine, and uh, I see how much time you spend with him on the motocross track, how much time you spend with him out riding and enjoying that time. So I want to backtrack to something that you said about your dad. Like, I, I think that to, to kind of segue into parenting just for a second, I think that we're all products of how we were raised, and sometimes we try to change the things that we disliked about how we were raised. I, my, my experience is similar to yours. My dad is an absolute workaholic. All of my work ethic, I owe to my dad. He taught me and my mom. They have everything they have. They worked really, really hard for it. It wasn't a, wasn't a hack, right? And so, but uh, I didn't spend a ton of time with my father. He was gone a lot. Having grown up in the car business, he was in California you know, essentially seven to 10 days a month buying cars. And when he was home, he was working on his business. Um, that was kind of his hobby. And uh, he was a phenomenal father in terms of a provider and teaching me the skills for me to be able to provide for my family. But I wish that we would have been able to spend more time together. And that's, that's not, that's no diss. Okay. Same boat. That's no, yeah. That is no disrespect for my father. I love my dad for the things that he taught me. Um, had it been a dad that was just all play, all play, and the bills never got paid, I would I would be maybe different now. My perspective would be different. But we're all products of how we were raised, who our parents were, and uh, trying to improve on that. I know for a fact that my father improved immensely from how he was raised, and that's what's important. And so to say that you're not working, I just think that you're working on different things. It's not necessarily, work doesn't always uh, translate to a paycheck. Sometimes you're working on areas of your life that are important to you. And um, I know that, I mean, Matt and I have, have worked together for 20 years, so we've had little micro conversations about parenting and what's important to us. But that work-life balance is, I struggle with that, dude. And I, I need to be better at that. I'd like to be better at that because I don't want to wake up when I'm 70 and be like, yeah, I worked a lot in my life and 
that's it. <laughs> oh, yeah. Well, you know, your whip's not going to miss you when you're dead. Yeah. So it's like, it's one yeah. of those things where it's like, you got to, you got to have that happy balance. Um, and for, like you said, I look at my, my situation, the way I was raised, my parents got divorced when I was 10. So I really didn't have my dad around that much. I saw him Christmas, you know, I, we, I don't know. I'm from the product of when your parents got divorced, when I was, you know, back in the eighties, it was, there was no split custody type situation. I didn't go to my dad's house every other weekend or anything like that. it was just, I saw my dad like three times a year. So, um, for me, like I'm around, like, even though I'm working all the time, like as I feel like I've improved upon where I was raised from, but I still, I look at other people and I look at the amount of time that they spend with their kids and different things like that. And I step back and I'm like, you know what? I should probably do better at spending time with my children. Well, you know, the, the thing with Jax too is a lot of people, Jax is my best friend. I don't have like a lot of super close friends that I call and say, hey man, let's go to the movies. Hey man, let's do this. I mean, my nine-year-old son is my best friend. We hang out every day. We're constantly doing things. And my wife's kind of worried about Jax because school-wise, he struggles. Um, I mean, we don't talk about it a lot, but he can't read and write very well. You know what I mean? And so she constantly worries. And what I tell her is I'm look, I'm like, Heidi, he has to go to school. He will learn to read and write. I said, but I'm his teacher. I'm the guy he's learning from. I'm teaching him how to make money. You know, I'm teaching him how to hustle. I'm teaching him how to have a, a, a killer personality that, that attracts to everybody. I said, yeah, he's got to go to school. He'll learn. But it's my job, like as a father, I'm gonna, I'm his teacher. I'm gonna teach him how to be successful. And so, not saying that's why we spend so much time together because I love spending time with my kid. But I look at our time together not only as just hanging out, but you know, educating him. Because the last thing that I want to do is give him everything. Which you know, I blew up that KX250. It was like two years after I got that bike, and it sat until I figured out how to buy a piston, how to get the cylinder honed how to get new rings, wrist pin bearing, clips, and to rebuild the, the motor, right? Jax blows up a motor uh, two days, and it's back together, and he's on the track. So I've had to find that balance of like, yeah, I want to give him better than I had. I want him to have fun. I want him to be competitive racing. I want him to, you know, have experiences and yada, yada, yada. But I'm also his teacher, so I have to teach him. What I learned from my dad was, hey, if you want something, you got to get it. If you, you know, are trying to, you know, do something, sometimes you have to figure it out and not just me. So, yeah, you know, I, I feel like I'm his teacher as well as, you know, his dad and, and everything else. And school is important, but I think, like, it's our job to kind of teach these kids, you know. Well, that, that segues into a little bit of education. So he kind of brought us up to uh, 18 years old. Um putting together bikes, ripping them down the back, uh, the back alleyway, warming them up, whatnot. Um, I just, from my experience and kind of go around here and then dive back into your journey. But, um, I had my stint in college, obviously like I graduated high school, right? It's all good. Went to Utah state, had my stint in college and I'm not a student. Um, I really, uh, I just, I struggle in that environment. I walked, I, I still remember my, I might have been a freshman. I think I was a sophomore. 
but I don't remember how long I went. Anyway, I was sitting in pol political science, poli sci, and I had this little yellow North Face backpack, and I picked it up, and I put my bag in, and I, they were talking about the hunter-gatherer society, which was uh, fascinating, um, frankly. But picked my bag up, put whatever I had in it, and I walked out, and I knew that I was never going to go back. Um, and there was a part of me that felt like I was betraying my, I guess, path to success. Do you know what I mean? Yeah. Um, and now I know that that was the right path for me. Like I, I walked out of college, never went back. I did not graduate college. I finished college, meaning I was finished. That's <laughs> but, my line. I know, but I stole it. <laughs> but uh, it, that was the path uh, for me. And so there's different ways to become educated. I think that growing up as youth, um, in this country that, uh, there's, you're kind of put in a box a little bit. And I don't, I don't, I don't want to be too opinionated on this cause I definitely, uh, think that school is a good thing for some people. It was not for me. And when I walked out, um, I had some curiosity if, if, if it was the right choice, I absolutely at this stage in life know that it was. And I knew shortly after that it was the right move for me, but um, there's a lot of different ways to go about providing for your family. There's a lot of different ways to define success. Um, I listened to uh, Gary Vaynerchuk quite a bit. I actually listened to his podcast this morning. And for months he was harping on, we need to redefine success. Success should be, are you happy? You know, do you, if you make uh, $28,000 a year but are happy, um, that is success. And for some people, they need to make more money to feel successful um, or accomplish the things they want to in their personal life. But success should be, are you happy? Are you content? Do you love your life? Do you have a good work-life balance? And um, that's a conversation I don't think is had enough uh, in 2020. Yeah. Well, you look at, um, I'm a big quote guy. I like quotes. And uh, Ralph Waldo Emerson. He, dude, that guy has some quotes. He's got a lot of quotes. <laughs> right? And uh, he has a quote about success. And he, like, defines success. He's all success is. And it's like planting a garden, making a kid smile, like, blah, 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 blah. Well, that's the way he defines success. And there's another guy that I really like. His name's Ogmandino, OG. I love the OG. Yeah, yo. Anyway, he... Uh, he talks about success, and he says uh, he said that you could line up a thousand men in a row and ask them each to define success, and no one will say the same thing. However, if you ask all thousand men to define failure, each one of them will say the same thing: the inability to reach one's goals. So, at the end of the day, what are our goals? What are we trying to accomplish? What is the end in sight? You want to know mine? Yeah. I want to be a storyteller. Okay. I want to be the old guy sitting on the front porch, you know, crippled as all get out, getting up with a cane and hobbling in and out of places with a, with a crowd around them, like, you know, grandkids saying, Grandpa, tell us about that time you got arrested in Southern California skateboarding in an empty drainage pipe and the helicopters came down <laughs> on you, you know? Hey, Grandpa, tell us about this time. And I think that... You know, when I'm old and I'm on the verge of death, I just want to have a whole bunch of stories. 
and I want people to be interested in, in hearing him. Maybe that's weird, you know, but that's my goal in life. Not money. I'm going to be, I'm going to die broke. In fact, my backup plan is to be the greeter at Walmart. You know what I mean? When I, when that's I, my backup plan, they Marcus. let them sit there, you know what I mean? And, and they give you a chair and you know, you can hang out and just welcome people to Walmart, you know, but that's, that's it. I want to be a storyteller. That's my, awesome. My, ba- my backup to that is to be a crossing guard. Yes. But when you said that, you know, I thought of Kobe Bryant because we lost that guy this year and a lot of that's been lost, but that he, he's, he was my favorite athlete of all time. Love Kobe Bryant, but he was getting into that stage in life where, you know, he was starting to come out with those storybooks for kids and he was a really, really phenomenal storyteller. It's kind of still in his infancy of uh, honing that skill, but um, RIP, Rip Cody, Kobe. For sure. I was going to say that, uh, you know, when I die, that's the goal. I want everybody to come to my funeral, stand up, look down in my casket, and be like, you know what, that guy, that guy right there owed me a lot of money. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I doubt that. I doubt that's going to happen. Yeah. I doubt that's gonna, they're going to be like, man, we was in debt to that cat. Yeah. <laughs> I, could t- I could tell a few stories. <laughs> I'm in debt, you know? <laughs> so 18 years old. And uh, I mean, where do you go from there? I, I don't know that part of your life. Yeah. So I came home off. I went on a mission, LDS mission, two years, Georgia, the Macon mission, spent some time in the South, came home. And I reconnected with Rich Eggett. And he, I worked, well, that's not true. I was depressed. All my buddies were still on the mission. I was a year older, you know? And so I was walking through the mall with no job, no money, just kind of like got home. I'm like, what am I doing with my life? And I remember thinking, I'm like, I need a job. I need a job. And a security guard was walking by. I'm like, hey, hey, you know anybody hiring? And he's like, you ever thought about security? I was like, yeah. Sign me up. So <laughs> he hired me to be mall security. <laughs> Hold on. So so how tall are you? I'm 6'6". Six, six. Okay. You're a pretty imposing security guard. I, I haven't pretty, heard this story. I was pretty skinny back how then big was as your well. Fl- how big was your flashlight? Uh, no flashlight, but they did make me wear a Smokey the Bear hat, which was eventually my, <laughs> yeah. my, eventually my demise. I started a petition in the mall saying that we didn't get enough respect for wearing those stupid hats. Because we didn't, we didn't start out wearing them. Then they had made us start wearing these stupid hats. I made friends with everybody in the mall. I was in and out of the stores. I, I mean, I was single at the time. I was picking up on all the chicks in Love Sack, you know. And so I started a petition again in the mall. I said, hey, we're not getting any respect. We need to start a petition against these hats. I got every mall employee to sign this petition, and I turned it in, and they fired me. Are you oh, serious? Oh, <laughs> Wait, and, and obviously, I mean, it, they should have. I was wasting work time, you know. Do but, you have a do you have a picture in that hat? No, absolutely oh, not. Damn no. It. That would be priceless. Dude, right? I used I used to have to work when the mall would close and it would be like, you know, we I think we had to stay there till one in the morning. Mall closes at ten. I used to go up on the roof with this other young dude who was working there. We'd fill up water balloons and the high school kids would congregate in their cars and we'd be at, you know, probably thirty feet up and we'd chuck water balloons at these kids until they would leave, you know. We'd ride the bicycles <laughs> down the, the stairs in the mall because there was nobody there. I had a lot of fun with that job, but yeah, yeah. It was that was my first job back from the mission, mall security, Layton Hills Mall. I used to work at uh, Crossroads Mall downtown, and uh, we I worked in the food court, and we always called mall security spam because it was like you weren't truly a pig. You were, you yeah. know, you were like For sure. 
imitation. <laughs> Dude, I remember some kid freaking stole, like, you know those Dallas Cowboys jerseys? Mm-hmm. He stole, like, four of them was running out, and they got on the radio, and they're like, hey, his kids stole these jerseys. And so I just start booking it, and I come up food court, and I see him, and he's running out the doors, and he sees me. He's like, oh, shoot. I was about to say, yeah, shoot. So <laughs> he's running, and I'm I got this fool, right? So he's running. He goes around the corner. The rule is once they get off mall property, you can't chase him anymore. So I'm like, I'm not letting this cat get away. So I go around the corner, and he's disappeared, but there was a cop that had pulled the car over. I'm like, Where'd he go? And he pointed at this dumpster. His kid had jumped in the dumpster. So I flip open the dumpster, grab this kid, throw him on the ground, and hold him there, right? And then I remember I'm I radio, I'm like, all right, I got him. All the other security guards start showing up and it's (laughs) (laughs) I remember they all pulled one dude pulled out an inhaler, took a hit on this inhaler, and then started passing it around to all the other security guards and they're Marcus, Marcus, you want to hit? I'm like, no, I'm okay. That was that was the people that I worked with, though. Yeah, that's awesome. Sharing that's hits off the inhaler. <laughs> so you get canned for getting the petition signed, yep. and then you're you ain't got no job. So I called Rich Eggett. Uh, I worked for him at the Honda shop. Said, "Hey, man, I really hate what I'm doing. I'd like to get back into you know motorcycle industry and do some stuff." And so he had bought ten thousand motorcycle helmets. 10,000 and uh, bought this big thing of them. He had a, a airplane hangar in Woods Cross, Utah. I said, come sell these helmets. And I've got a few bikes. So I went there, organized these helmets and would sell them for 50 bucks a pop. I put out a sign every day and I'd sell, you know, 10 to 15 helmets, 50 bucks, really wow. good deal. And then I talked to Rich. And I'm like, Hey man, I had this idea. Like I want to start a brand. I want to start a clothing company. He says, yeah, it's a great idea. Let's do it. So Rich had a Supercross team. The idea was to start this brand and push it nationally through his Supercross team, which wasn't a huge team, but they were at every single race, you know. We had a semi truck and we were trying to sell sponsorships, trying to get sponsors to sponsor the semi. I'm like, dude, let's just become the sponsor and use that as a way to push our brand. So we did, and long story short, it morphed from Kingdom Clothing, which was our first brand, uh, into Rockwell Watches. And then eventually uh, I left uh, in the process. Uh, we had opened a store in, in, in Woods Cross in his airplane hangar, our brand specific industrial area. We had a great grand opening, made a bunch of money. And then after that, we realized we were a very destination type location. Like you didn't just drive by. It wasn't in the mall. And you're like, oh, well, that store looks cool. It was like you knew you were driving there. And so our sales declined. So I'm like, how can we push sales? I'm like, man. Let's clear out the rest of the airplane hangar and let's throw a party. You know, you could buy something from the store and get in for free or you pay, you know, 20 bucks. The idea was is to get people buying our brand and pushing the brand. So it worked. We were getting a thousand people to this warehouse party in the middle of December with no heat and it was good. So when I left that, that event or when I left uh, kingdom and Rockwell, these parties were doing so good. I'm like, man, I'm, I'm going to keep throwing events. So Studio 600, which was a non-alcoholic nightclub, had opened up, had a great Thursday night, 2,000 people every single Thursday. This is back when people were social, you know? Yeah. Like you were allowed to hang out and, you know, Twitter and Instagram wasn't your only way of meeting chicks. Like you went out to places and congregated. 
So Thursday night was great. Saturday night was a lot at night. They would get 2,000 Latinos out dan dancing the salsa music every Saturday night. Friday nights, 75 people losing money every Friday. So I went to the owner. I said, hey, how much would it be worth it to you if I could get people here on your Friday night? He says, I'll pay you half of whatever comes through the door. I'm like, okay. Through my first party, I think I had like 1,500 people show up. Wow. I made like seven grand. And uh, I just started throwing up parties, you know. From that, uh, I realized that uh, that wasn't what I wanted to do forever. But I realized that everybody was always renting gear and stages, and I had to. So I started buying gear with the money because I was making really good money. Bought all the gear, and then colleges started calling and saying, hey, oh, left an important thing out, DJing. I used to hire DJs, right? Pay a guy 600 bucks from Vegas to come DJ. Terrible. And I realized that I didn't need to be the guy taking money and managing the business. If I didn't have good entertainment, my business was going to fail. I couldn't afford to pay for top level entertainment. So my idea was to become the entertainment. Like I could be a, do a better job than that guy. Shadowed a guy at a club for a few months, carried in his turntables, would set it up, and he taught me how to DJ. Middle of an, a party, I had this guy who was DJing that was terrible. I mean, people were basically booing him. So I jumped on and I DJed the rest of the night and I did pretty dang good. I probably wasn't the most technical or the most sound mixing wise, but I picked good music and I kept the energy. And so I started DJing and I've done that on and off. I mean, I've done it on for the past 10, 12 years. I've DJed in pretty much every state in the country with different event organizations. I've been to DC, Florida, you know, ev everywhere. And, uh, from that, I built the production company. Now I've realized that I don't necessarily want to be a DJ forever. I'm getting older and I'm not that cool. So I'm transitioned into the event company, which now with our current uh, climate with coronavirus, the production company has ceased to exist and there's no work. And so now I've transitioned from that into going full-time podcast. Back up a second. Um, you've, you, you've DJed. For a few different, like, well-known people. We were talking a few months ago. Like, name some of those. Uh, I mean, I've opened up for Macklemore. I've opened up for Afrojack, um, Sean Kingston, Kid Ink. That's so sick. A few other guys. That's so dope. Yeah. That's it. When I talked to my daughter, because Marcus uh, uh, did her mini prom this year. Which was awesome. Dude, it was freaking ridiculously awesome. Yeah. And uh, when I was telling her that, you know, I was like, well, what if we got a DJ? And she's like, well, I don't know. I was like, listen, no, this guy's kind of a big deal. Nah. I was like, this is, let me tell you about Marcus. And so I started naming off some of the people you open for. And like, I was like, this dude's, he's, he's going to do you right. And so, and he did. Like, I mean, honestly, that's the whole thing. To be able to have a, a, a mini prom with 10 kids and every single one of them was dancing and having a great time because they were good kids man oh, i appreciate that yeah. but yeah great but, dj but i mean you've got you morphed into a dj became dj marcus wing shadowing a guy did that for years then opened your production company which was very very successful and then bam march 15th hits and um, essentially all of those mass gatherings all those productions all those group gatherings are voided cut you know they're cut out and uh like what did, what did you what did that feel like what did you do 
because I know what you know you're doing now. You're busy, man. You're out. You're out drilling it. You've like recreated yourself in the matter of five months. But like, nobody, there wasn't a book that you like bought and said, "Hey, when this happens, do this." You know, it's not like you hopped on Google and it was like, "When when everything goes to hell, do this. This is the fix." But you've made it through that, and now you're doing well and continuing to expand. What happened on March fifteenth? What were your feelings like? How did yeah. you how did you resolve that? Like, take us through that journey. So March fifteenth, I can remember I was in the gym, and two weeks prior to this, I had a buddy call me and said, "Dude, this coronavirus stuff is serious." He says, "This this can affect your business," and I'm like, "Dude, you're crazy." I'm like, "This is gonna blow over. This is stupid. It's it's." It's a common cold, man. Like, it's not a big deal. And then it started getting worse and worse. And March 15th, I was in the gym at 9 o'clock, and I got my first phone call. It says, Marcus, we really hate to do this, man, but uh, we've got to cancel. Then I was supposed to be heading to Vegas the next day for a two-day uh, water lantern festival that I DJ MC. They called me and they said, Marcus, they shut us down. We're sorry, man. we got to cancel. And within, by the end of the day, I had $100,000 on the books for that month, completely gone. Not one event left. And so for that day, I, you know, somewhat in shock, you know, I'm just like, holy crap, it really did. It, it shut me down, you know? And I thought, you know, what do I need to do? So my first stage was, is I just need to come up with money, you know? I got to figure it out. I've got to come up with money. So I had a Harley Davidson. I sold my Harley. Uh, I sold a couple dirt bikes we weren't using. I had I had my my big bike, my KTM 300 XCW TPI sold, and I had loaded it to take to the guy. And my my wife luckily stopped me. And she's like, Marcus, if you don't have your dirt bike, you're not going to be worth anything. Don't sell your bike. So I didn't. So I came up with some cash. It gave me a little bit of a, like a comfort, you know, comforting feeling, knowing that I could make it a, a couple months with nothing coming in. And then uh, I realized that uh, this thing could be pretty serious. Like I thought for a month, like I'll just ride it out, you know, and I'll <laughs> I'll uh, wait till events come back. And I realized events were not coming back. So then I, I said, well, now I got to make some money. What am I going to do? What can I do that's within the guidelines that's still appropriate for me to make some money? So I came up with these backyard movies. I mean, people have seen them, right? But I have a bunch of high grade professional equipment, not blow up inflatable screens. I mean, I've got like some super nice equipment, right? So I started doing these backyard things. I knew that businesses weren't gonna be paying, it was families, so they're only 300 bucks a pop. So I started setting these up and it was successful. I do five a week, make 1500 bucks. And, excuse me, uh, you know, it was like my son was able to come with me, you know what I mean? And I was hanging out with my son and I was watching movies in backyards and we're goofing around. It takes an hour to set up. We watch the movie and we're eating popcorn and throwing, you know, Swedish fish at each other. And then we'd tear it down and go home and do it the next night. So that brought in some money. And then I realized we, you know, we're doing the Heavy Chicklets podcast. I had all this really nice equipment. I knew how to record podcasts. I'd kind of figured out the science. I said, man, you know, people are at a, a position where they need to get creative on how they're sharing their content, whether they're trying to teach their employees or whether they're trying to teach their customer base. There's a lot of people with information they need to get out. That's probably harder to do right now. I said, podcasting is a really good platform to do that because you know, you record a YouTube video, 
chances are someone's not turning that on and throwing it in the front of their car and watching their YouTube on the way to work, right? Some people probably aren't. I would assume most people aren't. So podcasting is a unique platform where people can Bluetooth their phone into their car and they got 30-minute commute and they throw it on and they throw it on the way home and it's a great way to, to, to communicate your message, right? So I said, I'm going to start recording podcasts for people. And Matt hit me up and I guess you guys have been talking about it. And so we went to work on yours, uh, another sales company. I made one post. I took this stupid picture of five microphones in a row. I threw up an led light on the wall behind, you know, to give it a little bit of ambience. You know, I said, look, I'm recording podcasts. Anybody out there, you want to record a podcast, I'm your guy. And I got three clients right off the bat from it. And, uh, it's really helped sustained and, I enjoy it, dude. Like sitting down and listening to you guys. I, I ran into a guy at Seven Peaks who listened to my podcast. He's like, hey, you're Marcus Wing. I'm like, yeah, like, I listen to your podcast. And we started talking. I'm like, what do you do? He's like, I'm in the mortgage industry. I'm like, funny enough, <laughs> I've been learning all kinds of stuff about the mortgage industry. And we sat there and talked about how jumbo loans are no longer available right now and how that's harder and talked about, you know, the the uh, cost versus uh refinancing and everything else and so i enjoy this stuff man and i'm i've been like a sponge lately where i'm just soaking stuff up and learning so i made a business out of something that i actually enjoy and uh i'm building a studio at my house um probably not the most glamorous thing to say hey if, if you don't have a conference room like we're in now you can come to my house but i've made this area that's really professional it's off my house it's got its own entrance it's going to have a really cool vibe. And I feel like my house is in a cool area surrounded by mountains. It's got a great, you know, feel there. But uh, I've started the studio and now the podcasting is going to become a full-time effort. And uh, I've spent money. I've, I'm going to spend about 10 grand, which right now is a lot of money, right? But I fully believe in this idea and it's going to work. I believe it's going to sustain. There's no safety net. If this doesn't work, I've got to figure something else out. My parents are not wealthy. My wife's parents are not wealthy. There's no rich great uncle. You know what I mean? So my thing is, is a lot of people in my industry, and I'm not trying to call anybody out, but they've all wanted to whine and cry and ask for government assistance. And that's great. And hopefully it comes because I know there is a lot of people hurting in my industry, you know, um, but at the same time, I can't afford to, to be upset about it. I mean, if I did, I mean, I've got no one to rely on. If I don't bring in money, bills aren't getting paid, you know, food isn't being put. I'm the provider, right? So instead of putting my energy into being upset, to feeling like a victim, to blaming the government for shutting it down, coronavirus this or coronavirus, I just don't give a shit. And I'm sorry if I cuss, but I don't, you know, it is what it is and it's what's happened and I've got to figure it out. So that's what I'm trying to do. There's an old notion. I don't know where this came from. If you took all the money in the country and divided it equally amongst everybody, that generally speaking, it would be back in the same hands in 10 years. And that goes to the fact that there's people who are grinders. We can You can define it however you want. They have a solid work ethic. They uh, refuse to fail. They're going to meet their goals. They're goal-oriented. But... Uh, the work ethic and just that mentality of I'm going to succeed. So you said, I don't know. I don't have a backup plan. I can tell you right now you will succeed and you, it will be successful for you because that's who you are. 
Like how could it? How could you not succeed? This may morph into it may open up other opportunities, but within your talents and within your skill set, which are amazing, that's just going to continue to to spiral. And dude, it's awesome to to hear the story, to kind of hear your journey, and to see all this happen in the last five months and what you did about it is so inspiring to someone like myself and others. Like it's just, I love it, dude. Like I think it's so cool that you had the balls, pardon my French, to to just say, you know what, I'm gonna make this work. I'm not gonna re- sit back and and whine and piss and moan. I'm going to make this work. And what's even cooler about it is that's what, and I know your wife's behind you because I've listened to your podcast, which you touch on this. Um, you've got a supportive spouse, but your kids are watching this. And again, that just, that they're going to absorb all that. And so, yes, you're, you're doing well, you're paying your bills, you're making money, this is being successful. But even more importantly, those kids that you're raising, and that's the most important for me, my number one job in this life is to raise my three kids so they are contributing to society. They're good friends. They help those people in need, have a solid work ethic, have ethics, all those things. They're watching you. Dude, kids, kid, we were all children. Your parents can tell you whatever the hell they want, but you're going to learn by watching what they do and what happens after their actions. And so that's the cool part of it is, I don't know your daughter's name. You have three daughters, right? London, Lexi, and Kinley, who we call KK. Okay. Your oldest is? London. And she's? She's uh, 11. Okay. Your three daughters, and Jax, they're watching that. And, man, the education they're getting through all this is so valuable, I think. I, I, I don't want it to feel like I'm looking for pats on the back right now and telling my, you know, what's happening and like my quote unquote story. Like, I don't want it to feel like, oh, I'm not looking for any kind of like acknowledgement or, you know, I'm not looking for a gold star or a medal. Like what about a cookie? I, dude, I can go for a cookie. <laughs> there you <laughs> go. Be good enough. <laughs> but look, it is what it is. And I'm, I'm just saying like, uh, there's a quote. Uh, so Danny Dixon, who is, uh, one of my favorite clothing brands. He owns a flannel company. They have a, a saying at their at their. Uh, it's written on their warehouse wall, right? And it's called Fitfo. Figure it the f- out. And I'm not much of a swear, and I try not to swear, and I'm I'm not gonna drop an f bomb, but that's what it is. That's what their business is built on. Figuring it out, you know. And we all have that ability, you know. And so if you're in a position where you know, your industry has crumbled, your business has been killed, just figure it out, you know, try something new. I don't, I'm just telling everybody this so that you could do it. I, I'm not trying to look for any kind of recognition or yada, yada, yada. I just, I'm, I'm, I'm not a smart guy. In fact, me and Jax are similar in school. I failed the same math class in high school three times, ended up going to night school for like three different classes so that I could graduate and just graduate high school, you know? I'm not, I'm not a brilliant person. I, I made it through six weeks of college and I went back on the last day and said, Hey, uh, today's the last day where you can get some money back. Right. And they're like, yeah, like how much money is it? And they're like, Oh, it's this much. I'm like, can I have that? (laughs) And I never went back to college. So yeah, I I don't want it to feel like I'm looking for recognition. It's just, I'm just doing the best I can. And, and I'm hoping that other people can see that and be like, yeah, that guy's an idiot. I can do that too. You know? For yeah. sure. No, and that's 
that's the thing that's so awesome about it. Is, uh, you know, you go through and you talk about one day you want to be the storyteller. Bro, you got a story. And like that's that's the whole thing is it's like it's one of those things where, you know, sometimes we don't realize the impact that we have on other people, even if it's just small or large or whatever. We're just we're doing the best that we can with what we got. And like for you reinventing yourself so many times, I mean, you go through your life events and you see, you know, oh, I did this and then it transitioned and transitioned and I had to transition. It's that's that's awesome because most people can't do that. I look at uh, I look at my father, you know, you talk about somebody 60 hours a work week. He was he still refers to the company he worked for for 40 years as if it was his own. You know, he just they like he refers to people at this uh, company because uh, it's a hardware roofing supply that somebody owes them. You know, oh that guy owes us a lot of money, and it's like, Dad, you don't work there and you don't have any ownership. So it's like it's one of those things where my old man he was uh, he was just he worked all the time, and it, if something would have gone sideways with him, he does not have that ability to reinvent himself. And that's that's why it's it's such a cool thing to see people that do that. There's uh, the Koch brothers. Um, they are uh, they buy companies, kind of chop them up, resell them, things like that. But they also buy companies and improve them. And I remember an interview years ago. This is on like 2020, back in like 2008 or something. And they asked him, you know, how how do you hire your employees? Like, how do you find talent to, to work within your organization? And they kind of asked him, do you, do you look for education? Like, is that important? And he's like, you know what? I don't care if they have an education. I don't care what their skill set is. We can teach them things. I, we don't care. And this is, I mean, they're, they're in the top, I think they're in the top 10 wealthiest people in the country. Um, he said, the only thing that matters to us is if you can solve a problem. If you are a problem solver, we can teach you the skills. But if you can't solve the problem that's in front of you as an employee, that means we have to hire somebody else to help you solve that problem. And I think that that is uh, uh, kind of an important statement, whether you're self-employed, whether you're an entrepreneur, maybe, maybe you're a realtor, listen to this. Maybe you're in mortgage. Maybe um, you're just you know one of our clients. Um, being a problem solver it's not easy. It's a problem because somebody else didn't solve it, right? But if you can be a problem solver, man, the doors that will open to you are just innumerable. And uh, I put a lot of uh, pride in being able to solve problems. Um, ever since I heard that, I kind of felt like um, I, I had that ability. But when I, after I heard that quote, I really focused on, hey, here's a problem. Does it require my attention? What do we do? to solve it, not piss and moan about the problem. How do we solve the problem? Let's talk about the result of how to fix the problem, not the problem itself, because you can just put yourself in a dark hole and throw dirt on your own head. How do we solve it? How do you resolve? How do you get on the other side of the problem? And that, for I mean, you guys can all have some comments to wrap up, but my takeaway from this and listening to your journey, knowing myself, knowing Matt's journey is become a problem solver and 
life will go much, much better for you. Don't piss and moan. It's so easy right now. I find myself doing it and I have to like stop and recorrect and like take the road less traveled. I find myself pissing and moaning about problems and it just doesn't get you anywhere. And that's where one thing for me, I, I look at a problem and it sounds bad. When somebody says, hey, I got a problem, it's like, ooh, that's something. So that's where I've even, I've tried to switch up my verbiage to call it a situation. We have a situation in this matter. It's not a problem. It's a situation. Because situations, you can solve those. Problems, you got to really sit down and like put a pencil to it. But situations, you can get past. Solutions and plan of action. And the days just go better, man. I think that you find yourself more successful, even in parenting, when, when problems or uh, issues present themselves. You know, you talk about it. You look at the why you got there so it doesn't happen again but then how do we get on the other side of this and um i think there's a lot of value in that that interview that i listened to of become a problem solver clearly they were talking about work but i think it applies in so many uh, areas in life marcus you're a problem solver and you're a six foot six problem solver you Thanks, don't have man. that smoky the bear hat but dude if you had that thing that would be, if I had a picture of that, we could have Matt paint it on the wall. It would be, I mean, be I know you don't, cool. you were yeah. kind of playing it down. Like, I don't, hell no, I don't have a picture of that, but that would be pretty sick, dude. It's an era of your life. You know what I mean? History. You learned what, you learned what you didn't want to do. Exactly. No, <laughs> good history. Yeah. Good times. So, um, we're going to, we'll, we'll kind of, uh, go some different directions from here on out. We may dive back into, uh, lending periodically. But uh, we're going to talk about it's fundamental life because there's going to be some areas in life that uh, will bring in some people that will, will be fun to listen to. And uh, so we'll go from there. But thank you for listening. Hey, will you hit up, uh, what's your Instagram handle? It's just at Big Marcus, M-A-R-C-U-S, Wing, W-I-N-G, at Big Marcus Wing. Big Marcus Wing. Not damn big, but big. He is damn big. Big Marcus Wing. So follow him on Instagram. He's got some really sweet content, inspiring content. Billy Luber is Matt's Instagram. Billy Luber at Instagram. And then uh, mine is MCBub, E-M-C-E-E. I'm not MC. E-M-C-E-E-B-U-B. Um, you guys can follow us on Instagram. But please subscribe to this podcast. Um, as new content comes out, you'll get notified. And please leave a comment and rate us as well. And uh, we will catch you on the next episode. Thank you so much. Bye.